The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to another episode of The Things We All Carry. A few weeks ago, maybe more by now, I stumbled across an indie film project with a very familiar title. The film, which was out of the Pacific Northwest, had such a similar title to my podcast, I had to check it out. My first thought was actually kind of a selfish one. I thought to myself, well, shit, someone else is doing what I'm doing. That thought quickly faded as I looked deeper into the film and the story behind it. Today, I get to introduce my audience to Cody Shea and his brilliant work of art, which is entitled the call we carry. Cody is a firefighter in the state of Washington and an independent filmmaker. Not just any filmmaker now, but an award-winning filmmaker, as he recently won the 2022 Best First-Time Filmmaker Award from the California Indies Film Festival. Cody set out to make a five-minute promo for his department's peer support group, and what followed became a full-feature documentary on trauma, PTSD, and recovery. His movie does to PTSD and recovery what my podcast is attempting to do. Highlight our struggles, inform you that you aren't alone, and show a path to recovery. That these two projects grew separately and organically on their own with an entire country between us is still amazing to me. The similarity in our approach is astonishing, and it's heartwarming to know that there are others out there shining a spotlight on this issue and trying to spread the word nationally and even internationally. We as a fire service specifically, and humans in general, can only benefit by the use of multiple voices preaching the same message. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry, or email mystory at thethingsweallcarry.com to offer support and to share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Cody Shea, thanks for coming on the show. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. I got to tell you, and we just talked briefly, I watched your movie and I've been blown away by it. The uh, stories in there, the the content, it, it all rings so similar to what I'm trying to do on this show. And it just blows me away that there's somebody out there on the West coast and there's somebody out here on the East coast and, and we're, we got the same thought in mind. And so I appreciated it very much. I wanted to talk to you about it and drive my audience to your movie. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, it's, it's funny. It's a small world. <laughs> like I said, I wish we met sooner and we definitely have the same message that we're trying to get across. Real pleasure to be on today. Yeah, not only the same message, but the ironic thing is we almost have the same exact title. Here I am on a show called <laughs> yeah. the, the Things We All Carry, and you're making a movie called The Call We Carry. And it's just so ironic and so, it's so similar, eerily similar when you watch the movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, uh, no, that was pretty ironic when I found your podcast and realized, you know, oh, wow, what is this? And then it was, the names were similar. And then I listened to your podcast and I was like, dude, this guy gets it. Yeah, and I'm happy to, that, that, organically it came about that we both started doing something very similar because that means that there's more people there are more people thinking about this and it it bodes well for the future i hope oh i completely agree yeah it is funny because i i had, i never heard of your show and then i heard it so why don't you give us why don't you give us a little bit of your background where are you from i know that we're going to speak in some generalities but what's your history what's your family history what what was growing up like and how do you end up where you are today i'm 34 i grew up in tacoma washington area and I've been in the fire service for five years. I uh, was raised in a firefighting household. Both my folks were uh, firefighters with Seattle, all retired now, and uh, stepdad as well, part of Seattle Fire. So I was pretty much raised within that culture and had a lot of exposure to it at a really young age. It's pretty much all I ever knew. Is that, you know, folks work 24 hour shifts. And I'd go to grandma's house, they'd get off, take me home. And that was my life growing up. So. I had a lot of familiarity with the fire service young and uh, a lot of exposure to it. And let's see, I 
got out of high school and started working full time. And there was always that niche in the back of my mind of, I really do want to be a firefighter, but I was more in the rebellious stage and my life took me in a different direction. And I, I fought it tooth and nail going into my twenties and gave up on pursuing it and started a longboard skateboard company. And that turned into a full-time gig up until about 25 years old. And then, you know, my mom talked to me one day and said, Hey, you can do all this stuff that you're doing and you can still be a firefighter. And at that point, the money was washing up and I, I didn't really see any longevity in my current plan. So I decided to start testing, went after trying to get hired with Seattle and uh, I got hired just south of there. And it turned out to be the best thing that ever could have happened to me, getting hired outside of Seattle, especially today, because I wouldn't be hired. <laughs> I would have been fired if I uh, went to Seattle because I had the vaccine mandate going on down here. Oh, yep, definitely. Yep, that, that went on quite a number of spots across the country, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was a nice affirmation that I had made the right decision. That's I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. And then got through probation and started joining some committees. and. I always had a passion for photography and videography from when I ran the skateboard company, did all the promotional videos and still photography for that for years, but I, I always missed it. I just didn't have the gear. And then when I got the job, buy myself some good gear and bought a camera and started taking still photography for the department, just for their promotional needs, just, uh, mostly in, in a hobby. Uh, since I started doing still photography for the fire department. And then once I acquired some new camera gear, started doing uh, promotional videos for them as well, mostly just in a hobby capacity and ended up doing a video for the department that did really well. And then about a year ago, our chief asked me if I do like a five to seven minute video highlighting the services within our department and uh, particularly our peer support team, basically an infomercial for our peer support team. And that isn't really my style. If you see any of my, um, of my work or my projects, I put a lot of, a lot of effort into them and uh, kind of think of myself as the perfectionist in my own mind. Like I just beat something up until I can't beat it up anymore. And then I release it. So I decided I was just going to talk to some people. I didn't really know where to start and said, I'll see if anybody's willing to talk to me on camera and reached out to a couple people. And eventually someone said yes. And then one person turned into two, two turned into four. And before I knew it over four months, I interviewed about 10 people all within my department. And some of the stories that I heard were really moving. It was hard not to relate to the stories that I heard. And I realized really quick that this wasn't going to be a five to seven minute infomercial on our peer support team. And I reached out to my chief and I said, look, this isn't going to be the video that we're all used to seeing. This is really deep and it's dark and it's raw and it's real, but I think it's going to do some good. I luckily got the opportunity from the chief right then and there to just run with it. And uh, he said, just do your thing, run with it. Let me know when it's done. And so I, I continued filming. I went on calls. I acquired footage from the news, from stringers, people that sell footage to the news in our community. And a lot of people stepped up and gave me a lot of footage that I needed to actually put together a story and just tried to tell the story in their own words. I didn't want a narrator. I wanted a really good representation of what we see every day. And in particular, our department being overworked, having mandatory overtime, people are burning out. And I wanted to capture that as best I could. And I think we did it. Oh, you definitely did it. I mean, you, I, like I said, I can't speak enough about it. You nailed it when, with this film. Let's go back to the beginning though. You mentioned that your parents were in the fire service and that it was always there for you. Yeah. Um, one of the things I know we talked about a week ago when we first sat down to have a conversation is, is you mentioned a fire that, that, that touched your family a little bit and it was, a, it was a big deal in Seattle, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It still, still is a big deal for those who remember it and went through, you know, I consider myself somewhat of a student. I, I study fires, especially fires that have fatalities, especially LODD, but I had to look this one up. So maybe you want to give a little background on this fire and maybe this will bring some people's attention to it. Sure. Yeah. It was, um, 
January 5th, 1995 in just south of downtown in Seattle, they had a, uh, they had a building go up and it was a two-story warehouse building. And when the initial companies arrived on scene and gave their size up, they, they didn't realize that it was a big, they had a basement fire happening in the building. And, uh, four guys were in there when the floor collapsed and four went down, two of them survived the fall and ended up running out of air. And that looked like two possibly died during it opened up a big, big hold for my family. My, my dad was, that was his district. That was his building. And he was driver at the time on a engine company and they were on an EMS call when this fire came in. So if anyone knew the layout of the building, it would have been it. So they initially heard the call go out. They were on their EMS call. And then once they cleared that call, they were able to respond to the fire, but that point was already a little too late. And, uh, I was, God, I was seven years old when it happened. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I was at my grandma's house and I was just about to walk upstairs to go to bed. And then breaking news on the TV, four firefighters were missing in a warehouse fire in Seattle. I knew my, both my folks were working that night and both of them ended up being on the scene. And I, I went to bed, not really knowing if they were alive. And then it did turn out to be four fatalities in the fire. And that opened up quite a criminal investigation did turn out to be an arson fire and that building was actually being by the ATF due to arson threats to it. So they were already initially planning something or expecting something to happen with this building, but that information never got transferred to uh, the field in Seattle. So basically these, these firefighters were walking into a trap that they could have been warned about, but weren't that brought up a lot of trauma within my, my parents, uh, especially my dad, my dad held on to, I guess, some guilt from that, from not being able to respond initial thinking could have made a difference when you never know, but that kind of took my dad down a pretty dark path. He went pretty heavily into the alcohol and he didn't last more than six years past that incident and ended up uh, retiring early. My mom did a full 30 years, stepdad, 32 years in it. And uh, that wound was still felt today within my family. My dad doesn't really like to talk about it. But I, when I first started to really consider going after the fire service in my mid twenties, I, I didn't have a good relationship with my dad and my folks, they divorced when I was three at the age of about 10, he was pretty much out of my life. And after I decided I wanted to go through it, I, I guess a conversation with myself and I said, if I'm going to do this, I need to understand what, what went wrong with my dad. I needed to understand what he saw, how it affected him, because I don't want to set myself up for the same thing. And so 25 years old, I tried to go on a little mission to understand him better. And I talked to a lot of firefighters that worked with them and tried to ask him as much as I could, but he still wouldn't really give it up. It was eerie because. I never really knew my dad like that. I, I kind of knew the alcoholic dad. I didn't know the, the fireman that was my father. And I wanted to understand what went wrong. And then the people that knew him best started laying out some of these calls that he'd been on, paying fire. Uh, he was first on scene at something called the Goldmark Murders. It was on Christmas Eve in Seattle or um, case of mistaken identity. It was supposed to be a political hit. Somebody broke into a family's home bludgeoned the whole family with an iron and uh, he was first on scene for that and kind of hearing how he handled this was eerie, you know, was told of, you know, he, my mom would come home and he'd be shooting targets in the backyard of the guy who actually killed all those kids. You know, he held on to that. He took it home and uh, self-medicated how he would. And then our relationship fell apart fairly soon after that. I knew that if I was going to be a fireman, I wanted to understand what happened to him because I didn't want the same thing to happen to myself. I didn't want to set myself up for failure. And uh, it was crazy to hear some of these stories and people tell me your dad was best fireman I've ever seen in my life. And that was hard to really wrap my head around until I got on the job. And so I tested for about five years straight and I got shut down by Seattle time and time again. And then I just realized, well, this, 
this just isn't going to happen for me. And I was still on some hiring lists and then got into paramedics privately and got about halfway through. And then I got the, then I got the offer, went through and almost initially after I got into the field, I started to see things that affected me that I would take home. And for me, it's always the family's reactions. Those are the moments that get me on calls to this day when I see a mom shriek and wail and, you know, it, I feel like you don't have, you must not have a heart if that doesn't affect you a little bit. Yeah. If it doesn't affect you at all, or if it doesn't affect you a little bit, yeah, you're almost heartless because I remember calls like that and I remember screams like that and they stick with you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think I, I understood a little bit more about my dad through that process. I think my whole journey in the fire service personally has been just searching for an understanding of my life's background and my family and where it went wrong because in some ways i grew up in a broken home even though both my folks were firefighters they had good jobs and my mom really did her best with me but she was trying to raise a man that was rebellious and i put her through a lot of grief growing up but i think it all came to head for me when i got in and then i started actually doing the job and understanding what was happening around me it was it was quite the experience so you're five years into the fire service now yes and you're firefighter paramedic correct yeah yeah so i i got the offer and i actually had to drop out of school to take the offer and took it got through spent a couple years um on a busy engine and then went through my department's paramedic program which took about 10 years so i've been a medic now for about a year Okay. And then the, like you say, your chief comes to you and says, Hey, I need a five to seven minute video. And, and you delve into it and you find it that there's no way in hell you can cover this topic in five to seven minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I knew that pretty quick. I was just trying to be tactful on how I was going to break the news. <laughs> cause, uh, cause I don't like to, people assign me things. I don't like to disappoint them. I like to, you know, do everything I can to make it that much better if I can. And I knew we had something special after about four months in and realized that, wow, I, I've never heard anybody talk about this kind of stuff to this extent and be this honest. I have and, to imagine that you felt the same way I did when I first, when I had my first five interviews and I was trying to bank a couple episodes and, and I listened to these guys and, or guys and gals actually, and A, I was blown away by the fact that they were willing to step up and put their their story out there, but B that, right. that some of the things they were going through and some of the feelings they were having, it just, it, it comes home to you and you you realize we, we all are going through this stuff. Yeah. 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 It, it, it made me feel very, it didn't make me feel alone when I was listening to all these words. In fact, I felt encouraged. I felt, wow, there's a lot of us out there. <laughs> No, because I, I silently dealt with a lot of this stuff myself. I have a fiance. I, I have a, you know, I have a mom, 30 years, firefighter, medic. I, I have people I can talk to and I do talk to, but hearing that I wasn't alone within my own department was encouraging to me. And it also made it that much more important. It was, you know, to tell myself, don't fuck this up. Yeah. There's that pressure, right? Um, yeah, I, and I found the same thing. I, my first five episodes were not all focused in my department, but once the word got out that I was doing this project or this podcast, it was a project at the time, but, and people started, people in my own department coming, just came out of the woodwork. And I quickly realized that it, I could do a show just on my department and I might not run out of material. Right. I realized that I needed it to be a national project because everyone in the fire service is feeling this right and so it's it's been this eye-opening thing of how similar yet different every story is yes absolutely and i i worked tirelessly on this thing i i killed myself over this project <laughs> i put probably 600 hours into it i worked on it every single day in some way shape or form for about eight months and uh, I was also going through my own shit during that time and trying to figure out a balance. And I think everything that I was dealing with, all the issues that I was having on the job, having those feelings that a lot of us have, 
I think I funneled it all into the product. Basically everything got put on hold or all my aggression, anything I had to to say basically got put into this documentary, all that energy funneled to. So then when it finished, I was hit pretty hard with the reality of, wow, I actually have to work out a lot of my own shit here. Um, and that's where I'm at now, but so it was a life changing, it was a life changing experience. Sure. Again, that's another ironic similarity between us because as I started working on this project myself, I started my own therapy mm-hmm. and I, cause I, I got to the point where I'm 10 years in basically, and I knew I wasn't handling these calls correctly. And I had my own personal life that was just in shambles. And I'm just, uh, just coming out of that part of my life. And, and I'm still adding stuff from the, from the job in whatever you want to call it, this picture that's in my head. And I knew I had to do something because a couple of friends at work, a couple of coworkers would notice that something wasn't right. And then it got to the point where I just couldn't get through a shift without, you know, at some point getting emotional about something. It usually wasn't related to the job. It was just, everything was just there ready, primed to explode on me. And so that's when I finally said, yeah, I need some help. And so it's coincided with the show and my own journey is running parallel to the show. And I pour a lot of my energy into this, into the show outside of work as well. And it's interesting to hear you say that because there, there's again, another similarity between the stories. Yeah. And it's, and I'm sure to deal with this too. I didn't really know how to respond to a lot of people. A lot of people reach out and I don't have any peer support training. I'm not a mental health counselor. You know, I, I don't know shit in regard to that. So that's been overwhelming too. It's not that I don't have gratitude or I'm not happy that people feel comfortable enough to come to me, but it's a lot. It's a lot when you don't have any training in that aspect. And it's a lot when suddenly everybody feels comfortable telling you how they feel. Oh yeah. It's, it is a lot. I can, I can verify that statement. It's a lot because yeah, you put yourself out there, you make yourself available and you have to, after you do something like this. Yeah. I don't know why in my mind, I thought that I would be in the background making this whole thing. I didn't put myself in it. I think there might be like one tiny clip of me and I didn't give any interviews. I really wanted to just be in the background for this. Now that it's done, it's, you know, now it's out there for the world to see. And uh, we've been getting reached out to by people from all over the world and it's great. It's, it's enlightening, but it's overwhelming at times too. So I'm still trying to figure out that balance. Yeah. My, my buddy who runs another podcast and he gave me a lot of information about how to do the equipment and set up. And he did say when he listened to my show, when he listened to my idea and he listened to a couple of the shows, the raw audio shows, he, his only reply to me was you better be ready. And I didn't understand what he meant. And now I'm starting to, to understand what he meant by you better be ready. And I don't know if you or I could have ever been ready for the response that we've gotten. I know I couldn't have been. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't have been at all. And I've worked on this thing for so long and I'm so insecure about my own work. So by the time it came down to actually show it to our command staff in the department, I said, look, I think I'm ready to show you what I have because I put so much time, energy and effort into it that at that point I'd become attached to it. It'd become a piece of art that I'm working on. And I didn't want to get too much further into it without them seeing it because I was afraid, what are they going to say when they see it? Oh, you got to cut this out. You got to change that. We can't put that in. And I just kept it the way it was. And I said, look, when it got done, I went to the front of the room and I said, I slammed down my pen and paper. And I said, all right, questions, thoughts, concerns, (laughs) what do you want me to change? And the room was just silent and I didn't understand why I was like, oh, great. And, and I said, what do you want me to change chief? And he said, I don't want you to change a damn thing. And uh, that was pretty interesting to me. I'm sure you, many people can relate. The fire service likes to keep everything close to the chest as far as what they put out there to the world. And uh, it's all about image and the image is wrong and you're going to hear it from the department. And I didn't hear any. From what was, I saw, well, from what I saw in the, in the movie and the interview that was done, the interview parts that were done with your fire chief. I, I admired that guy immensely well, yeah. from what I, from what I gathered from th- those parts, he gets it. <laughs> he definitely gets it. And so it's so fresh to, to hear a fire chief at that point, just get it. And so I was very impressed with what he had to say and, and how he handled the, the interviews. Well, I, I was, I'm still blown away by it, by the support that he's, he's offered the encouragement that he's shown. He's a fireman's chief. 
It really is. And not a term uh, we we throw around. So that's nice to hear. Yeah. And, I, and the funny, the funniest part was he, he, he changed a lot of minds when he came on, you know, how it comes when somebody gets brought up to be a chief in a department, somebody somewhere is going to have something to say about it and how they think it's going to go. And I think he surprised all of us. And I'm certainly encouraged by uh, how supportive he's been and how he's taken this issue to the forefront. This is an actual priority for him and the future of our department. And I think it's, it's changed a lot of minds and it's encouraged a lot of people to get help that have been struggling. And he, he knows it's an issue and that needs to be talked about. And for me, that's more than encouraging. So I couldn't be more proud of my chief and thankful for everything he's done in regards to this project and everything else we lucked out there. Yeah. And you had me jealous. We're in the process of, of looking for a new fire chief right now. And, uh, man, if we could find a, that needle in the haystack that, that you guys did, that would be, that'd be just phenomenal for us. And, and that's going to be a tough search, but that's, that is definitely something that a new fire chief at any department should emulate. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's got his work cut out for him. It's an uphill battle. We're, we're infamously known in this region for coming up short on our budgets and having to give more back to the city to meet those budget requirements. And it's tough because we need every dollar we can get right now. So we're hoping the film can also show some of these politicians and people in charge of our city and our community that like, this is a problem that we're robbing Peter to pay Paul and we're, we're just trying to play catch up. It's just not enough support financially for the fire department these days in, in our region. Let's talk about the film a little bit. And I don't want to give too much away because I want my people, my audience to, to, to watch the film. And I think that it, it would be impactful if, if they didn't know people's stories from the film, even though we yeah. could talk for, we could talk for hours on the stories that are in the film. I just, I think that can be left for somebody to watch the film, to learn these stories and, and to learn from those stories. I think that what I'd like to do is just hit on some topics that we have in, that are similar on the podcast and in the movie. And I think we we'll start right where you did. I mean, we're talking about, overtaxing or firefight we are uh, we're doing more with less or more with the same amount if we're lucky and i know i can for my department we just recently switched from a 2448 schedule with a kelly to the 56 with we're doing a day on day off day on day off day on four off and it's just a special kind of tired when you get to that point and so now we're losing people we're losing als providers and we've gone to a one-on-one -on -one model which is increased run runs for every unit and we're still, some of our guys actually took a pay cut to come to that schedule because that's the way it worked out. And unfortunately it was these young guys who have five years or less on the job. And right. I can't help but encourage these people. If the grass is green or somewhere, you've got to go for it. And then that also handcuffs us even more. And that's what you got. You guys aren't seeing the same set of problems, but it's a very similar set of problems where you're doing more with less. Correct. Correct. Yes. We, we haven't added a, a response unit, you know, a primary response unit in years and our population has been increasing. Our call volume's gone up. Our homeless populations tripled. We're in some hurting times. Right? So I, I wanted, I didn't want that environment to be looked over in the film. I needed to spell that out. That this is a contributing factor to people's mental health right now. I really wanted that environment to be captured because it's, it's unavoidable. It's, those are circumstances that have contributed to people's mental health today. And I think we did a good job of not beating that up in the film. We definitely talk about it, but we wanted to talk about everything. And I wanted to keep the film under an hour if possible. And I'm just over. Yeah. You're just now. right there. Yeah. And it got to the point where I wanted to cut stuff out and they were like, you can't cut anything out. Like you just can't, you need to add. I didn't want to add. There was a happy medium there. And you cover it well, because you mentioned the increases in violent crimes. You mentioned the increases in just general runs. Some of your guests that are, or yeah, I call them guests that are in the movie discuss it themselves, how they're just running more with less. And the one that really stood out to me for your area was that increase in arson crime. Yeah. Scary. Was it 82%? I believe. 82% was when I took that part of the news article out. I believe it's gone up since then. And our, our homicide rate has increased by 200% uh, in the region. Which that number just came out today. 200% um, so, increase in homicide. And you guys are seeing most of those calls. 
Yes. Yes. And they, that, that's homicide. That's not people shot. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, shootings almost every day. And I think fire departments all over the, the region and really all over the country are probably feeling the, the fallout over the deep on the police movement. Uh, we, we're certainly dealing it up here where basically some laws have been passed in our region that have handcuffed police and not let them respond to the calls that they want to go on. We have an increased heightened awareness um, for our region right now because we know that we're alone. We don't have the support from the police that we once had. Police are understaffed. We're understaffed. It's a kind of demoralizing environment in fire departments all over the country, right? As a result of, you know, politics and certain laws that have been passed that we're certainly feeling in this region. It's unavoidable. Uh, it needs to be talked about. The other thing that, of course, the other similarities were the stigmas that we have, why we're not asking for help. And, and I think that it's the same thing across the board that I'm finding on this show. You, we're the helpers. We don't ask for help. That's one of the themes that you, you heard over and over in your movie. Everybody comes into the fire service like they have something to prove. And yeah. most of us do. <laughs> but at what point do you just admit the things that you see around your body? And to never admit that, then I think you're setting yourself up for failure because it's going to affect you and it's going to affect people around you and people get burned out and people get to a point where they've seen too much. And that, that stigma is still alive and well today. And I think it's gotten better, but there's just things that are, are still not talked about in the fire department, this being one of them. And though we're seeing an increase in people finally actually for one, acknowledging that there is an issue, that people are killing themselves, that this is an underutilized resource available to firefighters. I think that we can only avoid this for so long. <laughs> you, you mentioned the stigma, and I had a guest tell me one time that he didn't think the stigma was external. He thought the stigma was more internal. What do you think about something like that, that kind of thought? I'm guilty of it myself. You know, I've been on calls that really bothered me, but I, I wanted to hold it together for other people and, or at least in my mind, thinking that's helping being the strong person that people can lean on. Even the strong persons can break. It's just a matter of time. So I, for me, it was more of a passive mechanism. It was just something that I didn't realize that I was doing. It wasn't a conscious thought of, oh, be strong, act like this doesn't bother you. That, that wasn't what was happening. With me. It was more passive. And I think a lot of people, are, that's where they live. You know, they live in this a stigma that exists that they don't even really know is happening or behaviors they exhibit that they don't even realize they're doing. I'm still trying to understand the stigma, to be honest with you. I know the old school stigma, it's very uh, active. It's not passive. No, we don't talk about this. Man, the fuck up. This is, uh, this is what we do. And you can say that as much as we want, but the bottom line is what we see is not normal. The events that we go through and the stress levels, the lack of sleep, all of that is not normal and it's completely okay to acknowledge that so that's how i feel about the stigma at least so it's okay to acknowledge that things aren't normal how are you doing that for yourself on a day-to-day -day or shift by shift basis i've known it's not normal for a long time when i was i think i was three months in um as a probie and went on a call where we worked an overdose and mom came in and realized what was happening and just watched her reaction. And then it was just like family member after family member. And they just kept showing up. And we're right in the middle of a pretty dynamic code. And before you know it, you haven't even processed like them processing. It. You're working, you're in a stressful environment and people all around you, are, it's hitting them, their process as it's happening. You don't really get that opportunity until after you leave. And I went home that day. And I heard that next morning and, you know, I felt like shit. I felt really bad for this family. And I now realize that that's what triggers me, you know, putting, having empathy and putting yourself in not just your patient's shoes, but your patient's family's shoes and going, man, if my son was dead on the floor right now and eight people are pumping on his chest and trying to wake him up. You know, that would really, that destroy him. So for me, it's a battle of not taking it too personally. I try not to, I try not to hold on to the blame or the guilt or asking the questions why, you know, or most of us are never going to know why, which is a problem for me. It's been a, a personal issue for me my whole life because I, I search for the answer to what I want to know what led to it and what got people to that point. And sometimes you're just never going to get the answer to that question that can be discouraging. 
But for myself, especially after working on this film, I had a stigma within myself. I was afraid to ask for help after putting this out there and then having people watch it said, oh, you did such a great job. It's going to change things. And I still feel the same, but I was battling my own demons and going through my own stuff right at the end of this film. And then I felt a responsibility to stand up and say, I'm not going to get help because how would that look? And you just made this film about all these people that told you about how they got time off and now you're getting time off. It was, it, and then I had to wake myself up and then my fiance recognized it early and said, it's okay to not be okay. And maybe I should take my own advice in this film. And I ended up having to make that decision and put that, I don't even know what to call it, stigma or pride aside to get myself some help and not really worry about what people think. You know, if you're not doing okay, you're not doing okay. It doesn't matter if you just made a film about mental health and PTSD. I'm not doing good. I'm not doing good. The other thing that, that I thought you did a good job on, and this is the one thing that I've been talking about quite a bit is the suicides. Right. I don't think the general public realizes the number of firefighters that are killing themselves in on a yearly basis. And the, st oh, no. the stat you used in the movie was, I'm, I'm not sure how many years, was it 10 years? What's that? The, the statistic on the number of firefighters. I think it was, I, I thought it was over a 10 year period, roughly that you used in the movie. Yes. Yeah. 20, I think it started at 2001 and I got these numbers from firefighter behavioral health Alliance. And even they admit that, you know, we don't have the full picture because <laughs> a lot of these Suicides are not reported. No, I firm, I'm a firm believer that the majority of the suicides for firefighters aren't reported and discussed it on a couple of episodes. And I'm not sure the reason why I, I, I don't know if it's, if it goes back to an embarrassment or if it goes back to a monetary base. And if there's, if you don't ask the questions, you don't really know. It, it's really a bummer that we can't figure out a better way to track these things because they're happening. It's real. It, you know? it, and I it's think very real. Yeah. And I think the first step is just acknowledging that it's happening and that's a problem. That's exactly what I've been saying, not just on the show, but to people. In, and I don't know, I know you've listened to a couple of episodes. I don't know if you under, if you knew the genesis for why I started this show. Not really. We had, I, I Instagram page just to kind of highlight issues within the department. It ran out of control for a little bit. And so I came around to a focus. Uh, we had a period of times where we had a number of suicides in what we call the DMV, the, the DC metro area. And so DC, Maryland, Virginia. One day, a guy from a kind of a local adjoining uh, is a volunteer fire company, but he was a volunteer fire a couple of years ago, a fireman a couple of years ago, but he killed himself. And that turned out to be number five in our area for a year. Wow. And so it was between volunteer and career, and it ran from rookie to tenured firefighter. And those were the five that were reported in a year. I, 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 every time I see someone see something that says uh, firefighter X died unexpectedly, I almost assume that was suicide. Right. So do I. <laughs> and so at that point I decided these guys can't die in vain. Something good has to come from these deaths. And that's why I started pondering, all right, what can I do? And it turned, that's what turned into this podcast. So when you talked about suicide in the film, that does strike, strike home with me because that's the basis for why I decided to do this pod. And then you have a couple of your guests in the film discuss their experiences or attempts at suicide. And again, I'm not going to get into specifics because I want my audience to watch your film, but it's very real and it's very real across the country. Yeah. You've done, you've done a really tremendous thing with this podcast and yeah, from the bottom of my heart, I. When I first heard it, I, I was like, wow, I really wish I could listen to this sooner. And a couple of your episodes talked about relationships and, and working with their wives and how their wives would notice things and just a lot of it, all, all of it talked to me. So I'm glad we met that thing. And I think you're doing a really good thing. Where do you, where do you see the future of mental health in a fire service? I, th I think I have some ideas, but I'd like to, I like to bring that topic up with people when I talk to them, because sure. I think it. I think there's some value in discussing the future, obviously, because we want to know where we're going. Where, where do you, what would you like to see change in general in the fire service when it comes to mental health? A lot. I want to see a lot change, honestly. And I think it starts with workers' compensation. Yes, we, in our region, we have 
something set up with our state to where you can claim PTSD as an on-the-job injury. However, the process of getting that approved needs reform and it needs reform bad. And the other thing is for some of the stuff that we're battling right now is, yeah, I can go see a, a psychologist, but they have to be affiliated with my insurance company or L and I won't fork out any money for it. The problem is we might have seven providers in our region that are booked up months ahead of time. You know, that's not good enough. You need someone, you need them right now. And I want to see that change. I want some reform to the process of OJI within our, let's, in our state. Let's talk about that real quick for, and it's not real quick. Cause it, it, I have questions about that. The OJ, OJI and that's on the job injury, correct? Correct. So you guys have a system set up where if there's a trauma or if there's PTS that can be deemed an on the job injury. Am I right? It can. Yes. But we all, I think within the fire service understand that a lot of that's cumulative. It's not just one incident. It's a yes. combination of several. I think it's almost never a, a, a solo incident. And the way it's set up right now, they want a specific incident. So really, if you're out on the lines and things bother you and write down these call numbers, actually keep track of this stuff. This is exposures and you need to treat it as such, because if you don't and you get into a point where you've had enough and you need to actually claim this injury, they're going to want a specific incident. And that doesn't always work. My, my recommendation to people is get ahead of it, document this stuff and just whether it's a note on your phone, something, but have some kind of documentation to back up the fact that you were even on this call that bothered you, because it might come down to you proving that you were not only there. But that it was a traumatic event that it bothered. I, I wish it wasn't as hard as it is, but it's, it's funny, funny, ironic. You say you wish it wasn't as hard as it is, but at least you have the option where you are to find, find a call and, and maybe have a case for an on the job injury. That's a foreign, Correct. that's a foreign language where I am. That's crazy. No, and that's crazy. And, and that's, I don't want to take anything we have for granted because I've only been in the fire service for five years. I don't have 20 years on the job and I haven't worked all over the country. I've only had the exposure to my limited amount of experience that I have. It's the same here. Um, and that's exactly yeah. why I'm blown away by the fact that when I heard that in the movie, I was like, oh my God, they, they can actually do that. That's, and I've made that's this a state level, but I've made this argument even at the local level with battalion chiefs or captains or, or whatever, that if you get a traumatic call and we all know what a traumatic call is. Yes. I, I will stand by the fact that any call can be traumatic. It just, it's how it affects you personally. Those marked calls, the, the infant CPR, the, the, the fatal fires, the LODD, whatever it is, one of those that re would really knock anybody on their ass. I've made the argument that's an injury and that they should be put on injury leave and given whatever resources they need to start that recovery process. Absolutely. But that's, I think the best thing on your side is numbers. How many people are actually taking off time, how many people are going out sick and you don't have a good system to report that because they're not acknowledging no. that it exists. No. And, and, and when I make that suggestion, I'm laughed at, or we're laughed at because it's, oh, that'll never happen. They don't even bother to entertain the idea. Yeah. And, and I think that when I say where we might want to see the fire service go with mental health, I, I think what you guys have out there and we can make that on a, on, on a, we can filter that down from the state level to the local level and, and we can start to determine that these are injuries and and we can do something about it. We can give some time off. We can get coverage at least for the rest of the shift or whatever it is. That's the that's I think the starting point. Absolutely. Yeah. I could I feel terrible that there's other regions like yours in particular that don't recognize the stuff is happening because that's your biggest hurdle. And I'm glad that we've made progress in that aspect. You know, now it's just fine tuning things. Yeah. I feel really terrible for people that can't so claim how, what's actually happening. How successful are your firefighters in, in, in getting that classified as an on-the-job injury? Right now it's, it seems to be kind of 50, 50, you know, if you don't keep track of a specific call, everything like keeping those records can bite you in the ass late. I know that firsthand, like I said, but the other issue is the affiliated providers. Like I said, if you have a provider that has a license to, and practices mental health and you go see them, but your insurance or L and I or workers' compensation won't recognize them because they're not in their network of, you know, people that take your insurance and then just, oh, you can't see them or we're not going to compensate you for anything that you spent there. That's a problem. You either need to increase your amount of providers in our region, or you need to have some kind of, um, 
exception to that rule because otherwise you're just going to turn people off from getting help. Oh, they don't take my insurance. Fuck it. I'm just going to keep working until I can't anymore. Yeah, because $150 a pop for a, for a therapy session, is that's hurt. that hurts your pocket. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No matter who you are. You know, no. And that, that all increases. And it, it, it uh, stacks up over time very quickly. I had Before a, you know it, you're out thousands. I had a discussion with is, uh, Robbie. He's in Tennessee now, but by way of California originally. And he, uh, he applied for short, short-term disability for PTS and was denied, even though the doctor had documented everything and had diagnosed him with PTS. The insurance company said, no, you don't qualify. And they didn't give him a short-term disability. But when he came back to the same insurance company later that year to, to renew his life insurance because he had another child and he wanted to add money to his life insurance, they denied it based on his PTS diagnosis. So they're basically expecting him to kill himself so they won't... <laughs> Right. Give him a life insurance policy, yeah. Yeah. And but it doesn't exist. Exactly. And so that, that was like, that was just such a slap in the face to him and to, to anybody that's gone through that. Well, especially if you read between the lines, you're like, right. what does this statement actually say? It'll I be mean, cheaper if you exactly kill yourself. That. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And that's, that's, and that's an insurance thing. I know it's not a department thing, but it's still part of the process. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's terrible. I think exposure to people outside of our profession is paramount i'm hoping to get some of that happening with this film get people actually some eyes on what's actually happening um you know, so that's all i hope for and as far as where i see it going in, in our department and in our region i'd like to see technology utilized a little better during covid we couldn't even enter our stations without taking our temperature putting picking up the ipad and saying yes i don't have a fever i have not been around anyone with covid and we had to do that to enter the build oh yeah so like, so do we yeah yeah so how hard would it be to just maybe add a checkbox uh, of a mental health check when you come in something that's just that's not that active it's just a checkbox that you check that yeah i would like some resources if you have a peer support team member, um, in specific, a specific individual, you'd have that option to check their name, utilize this technology a little better in that aspect, I think is going to help us. That's something I'd also like to see. Yeah, that, uh, I, I like that idea that the issue I see with that is going back to how honest are we going to be with each other at that point? And I guess if you get to that, if you're at that point where you really want some help, you're going to be honest, but you, both of you and I know that if you're not ready for it, you're not going to say it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I got to a point where I, I couldn't really fight it anymore. You know, I, my, oh, same you know, here. My, yeah. My fiance was saying, look, you're not yourself. You know, I mean, it's not stuff anybody wants to hear, but you need to hear it, <laughs> especially if it's gotten to that point. I'm thankful I have an opportunity to get some help, work on myself and yeah, try to make it out of this thing alive. <laughs> Cause really that's what we're all after. We, we love the fire service and we put our whole lives into this, but there's a life after you leave. This. I think I forget who said it in the film, but they, and I'll, I'll paraphrase because I don't, I, I, my memory is shot sometimes, but in the last night listening at one point paraphrasing, the comment was made, this is a fantastic job. It's a great job, but it is killing us. Right. And yeah. I don't think enough firefighters realize that, let alone people outside the fire service realize what all is affecting us in this job from actual fire to the traumas, to our gear, everything to the sleep. We haven't even talked about sleep and nutrition and all that stuff that adds into it. So everything is geared to, to kill us essentially. And that's part of the job, but there's some things that can be taken into account and can be mitigated if a department can be proactive enough. or if no, I'm very proud of my department. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was getting to that, that listening to your fire chief, listening to the guys that are sharing their story, listening to your mental health specialist. I forgot her name. I apologize. Um, Jenny, Dr. Jenny Gregory. And she calls herself uh, a traumaologist or is that what, or, or something to that effect? I forgot. She's a traumatologist, traumatologist, which I'd never heard that phrase before that name before. So it, that's, that was interesting to hear it phrased that way. What she's doing for you guys and with you guys is fantastic. It's some wonderful work. Oh yeah. She's been a breath of fresh air for us. And I'm sure you probably uh, know what I'm talking about is one of the hardest things when going to see uh, a counselor is laying the scene. 
you know, explaining your job. They really don't, haven't put any time or effort into learning what we do and what we see. That's probably not the good counselor for you. So when you, for me, it's a relief when you go into a room and you're like, I don't have to tell you what I do. You know what I do. I don't have to explain to you what I saw and correlate that back with how it bothers me. You already understand that. So having her, and she's seen a lot of shit. She's been all over the world. There are all sorts of different war zones. In the movie, she was just going to to the Ukraine, correct? Yeah. Yeah. She went to the Ukraine in the middle of filming for that. And uh, it's just dozens and dozens of war-torn places in the world. And she's got stories for days of uh, traumatic stuff that she herself has seen. So not having to like I said, lay that seed for her was beneficial to us and especially to me personally. And she's done a lot of good for our department in that aspect and trying to change things and getting people trained and increasing our resource list too. That's a big thing. That just needs to happen. You know? Luckily, people have reached out all over the region after seeing the film that are providers that do have services that we can benefit, you know, and I just pass them along to our safety chief and hopefully add them into our list. And so that, that was, that's been awesome to see as well. All right. So I want people to watch the film. I'm going to direct everybody to the film as much as obviously link to it in the show notes. So they have a, so they have a connection to make it as easy as possible. Um, I will, I'll put it out on Instagram and whatever, whatever following I have there can get a hold of. So I want to end with, uh, those two questions that I ask everybody. Um, uh, the first one being an everyday carry based on what both, what we both call the title of our projects. Uh, so mine being the things we all carry, I just, I like to ask everybody about an everyday carry, something you carry on your person that you feel naked without. <sighs> That's a tough one. <laughs> I was thinking about that one. Yeah. I gave you a week. Uh, I gave you a week heads and up, heads up on this one. Yeah. Oh gosh. Can you give me a second? Of course. Um, we can I'm edit out to... all the dead air. <laughs> Good. Cool. Cause I'm looking for this book first. So let's see. I was, I have this set aside. Something that I, God damn it. <laughs> I thought about this and I just couldn't get an answer. Can you give me an example? Um, it, I'm hoping this is not. For me, <laughs> it used to be, have you ever heard of the Skulls for Hope? He was one of my first earliest guests and he makes these bracelets and they're beaded bracelets and there's a skull on each one of them. And it's just a suicidal awareness and prevention thing that he does. Because he, he went through some dark times for himself after a call that really affected him. And so I wear a Skulls for Hope bracelet on my right arm, and that's every day. So that's been an everyday carry for me. And then once I've started my own therapy, I, at the end of each session, we do some acupuncture. And she just puts five needles in each ear for me. And it's uh, for me, it, it just brings a meditation. And so I sit there for about 15, 20, 30 minutes, and I just meditate with the, these needles in my ear. But then it, she also puts these, what, what she calls peas, and I jokingly, I, I mistakenly called them beans the other day, but she puts these peas in a strategic spot in the back of my ear. And so they stay there between therapy appointments. And so I've been using that as my everyday carry because I feel naked when those come off now. Those are my examples. I can't okay. waste any more time for you now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'd have to say my everyday carry is probably just my challenge coin that was given to me after I, you know, graduated, uh, recruit academy from some instructors that still mean a lot to become some really good friends of mine. And on the challenge coin is uh, one of our LODDs who passed away on a call in 2013. And uh, he was larger than life kind of individual. And then I never met this guy looking into some of the stuff that he did, you know, sailing around the world, being to all these different countries, backpacking, really actually inserting himself into uh, history all throughout the, all throughout the world. Um, it's been a source of inspiration to me. So I carry his coin. I, I have tons of different challenge coins and I'm not really a, a challenge coin flipper, if you will. Right. But that one's special to me just because it, you know, it does have his face on it and it's just a reminder to just go above and beyond. So that's something I, I carry with me, uh, every day. And for the, uh, for the non-firefighters in the audience, a challenge coin is just that it's a coin that, that you're given for some sort of an accomplishment normally. And it, it, there's a tradition if you're out at a bar and someone slams down a challenge coin on the bar and you don't have one, then you're buying the next round is essentially the challenge. <laughs> yeah. So just so everybody has a frame of reference, what, what that tradition is. And I think that's a perfect one to have. Right. So what about a book? What's a book you want to suggest? 
So a book that's really stood out to me lately, it was actually recommended to me by my fiance and it's called Inner Child Therapy, How to Deal with Your Inner Child uh, by Maureen Jones. And it's a short book. It's actually only, I think like 26 minutes on uh, Audible, but really highlights a lot of stuff. You know, for me, all my trauma doesn't just come from the job. I have a lot of family history. I'm sure you do too. I'm sure everybody does. P PTSD is an accumulated thing. And for me, a lot of things stemmed from my childhood and, you know, growing up and things I dealt with that I thought I dealt with that maybe I didn't. And here I am 34 and now I have to deal with them. So that book really broke it down for me to, to understand your past trauma and your upbringing and things that all weave into the fabric of who you are today. So I found that book to be beneficial and I listen to it often. Awesome. I will link that in the show notes. If, and if there's any way, actually, if you could send me a picture of the challenge coin, I can put that in there as well. So people can get a, a glimpse of that. Well, one thing I forgot to ask you, what's, what are your future plans? Any more films in the works? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm definitely taking a break, much needed break. Like I said, I, this thing really took the life out of me. And then when, and I was putting all my aggression into finishing it and it became an obsession. And once that's done and taken away from you, you have to reset. And, um, so right now I'm taking a nice break. I'm going to go back and doing some still photography that I'm excited about doing because it's my little comfort zone. It doesn't take a ton of effort for me and I get excited when I do it. I do have plans to pursue some more document films. I, I eventually one day, I think I'd like to do something on the paying fire and, um, uh, just because the story is just insane, even the events after the fire. And it's a forgotten tale in our region, unfortunately. No, like I um, said, I had to look it up. I had never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. And there was so much involved in that and the arson and they knew who did it. And they had to track him down from Brazil. The White House got involved. Like, it's a really dynamic crime story as well. So I think I might end up pursuing that someday. I would also like to maybe do a video about police. Definitely there. ideas in the hopper. And rest is good. Taking that breather and yeah. taking that break and recentering yourself is optimal, especially after something that intensive. Yeah. And that's what I'm focused on right now. Like, you know, I, yes, I have plans for the future. I don't know exactly what they are, but uh, right now it's just enjoy family, try to recenter a little bit and get back on, back on track. Cause I definitely don't feel on track right now. This has been quite the whirlwind of emotions making this thing. Yeah. And you're, you're doing this show, but you're doing press constantly. I'm assuming. Yeah. That's been really difficult. I'm pretty uncomfortable in front of a camera anyway. This is different though. This is more personal. This is just a conversation. And so that was why I was anxious to do something like this. You, you don't get to see the actual real side of the human element. I feel like in a lot of the press. No, you don't. No, it's the nuts and bolts and the why should we watch? Right. Yeah. Well, I have to, I, I can't thank you enough. This is, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate the conversation and I appreciate the film and I appreciate that the mission and the message from the film is, uh, I mean, we're, we're right there together and we're doing the same, we were doing the same thing. And, uh, if anytime you want to come on, you want to talk about it or you want, you want to send somebody my way, feel free because I, I love what you did there, man. I love what you did. Oh, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. And I, I love what you're doing. I really do. One of my new favorite podcasts for sure. I appreciate that. <laughs> and, and like I said, I'm going to direct, try to direct this audience of mine towards your film and I'll put it out there as much as possible. All right. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate everything. All right. Well, go enjoy the rest of your day, sir. I, I uh, <laughs> will talk to you in the future at some point. Sounds great. All right, man. Take care. Take care. We're out. All right, sweet. That was a good talk, man. I appreciate it. Good. I, it was. I Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourself, and remember to check in on each other.